0: always grateful for the opportunity to be able to open up the Word of God with our church family. And tonight we are going to be a couple places, we're going to spend most of our time in John 15, um, but uh, by way of introduction to John 15, we're actually going to be in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 5, and we're going to um, start there in just a couple minutes, and then like I said, make our way to the book of John and um, when pastor asked if I would uh, preach tonight, he asked specifically if I would um, speak on the topic of discipleship, discipleship, and so um, I had a few thoughts through that, and we're going to talk through it. We're going to see um, some of, John, some of uh, John's recording of Jesus' views on discipleship, and really what we're going to see is we're going to see the attitudes, and we're going to see the, um, the posture of discipleship. We're going to see how God grows us, the process by which he makes disciples out of us. And um, as we jump into this, and even by way of introduction, um, as we look at the goal of a disciple, the goal of a disciple, whether it be a Christian disciple or uh, really that word disciple, it kind of means like an apprentice, um, and the goal of a disciple is to become more like their master, to emulate their master in some regard. Um, Whatever that trade may be, whatever that lifestyle may be, that's the, the purpose of a disciple, to be like their master. Um, and here at our church, we launched recently, and this is not um, going to make you the perfect disciple, but uh, it'll help you grow through that. We launched what we call a Life Coach Discipleship, and I know there are a number of people that are in here that have either gone through the material, there are a handful that are leading others through the material, some are going through it right now. Um, there are a few in this room that just started last week or are starting this week, and so it's a really exciting thing. And so that's something that we want to, before we even jump into all of this, just make uh, known to you, make available to you. Uh, Anytime you can get involved in that, and that's a a tool for one-on-one discipleship. Um, But when we say discipleship, what do we mean by discipleship? And discipleship draws us to be like our master. But this, uh, if we look at Christ, we look at his model, this is an intimidating task, right? Right? we study through Jesus, we see that he is um, God in the flesh, the Son of God. He's eternal. He's sinless. That's, that's a task that's way beyond our ability to uh, really accomplish in our own selves. One author even said this, which I related to it, and I think you guys will as well. Um, I like finding people that um, encourage me because they're as hopeless as I am sometimes, right? So, One author said it this way, He said, ironically, the more like Jesus we actually become, the less like Jesus we tend to feel. Anyone relate to that? The more like Jesus we become, the less like Jesus we feel. Um, This would almost be a matter of sometimes we don't know what we don't know, right? Ever been there? Trying to learn something and you don't realize that you did this whole thing wrong and you have to go to someone who knows what they're doing and they explain, oh yeah, you missed this. Oh, I didn't know I missed that. I thought I was doing the right thing. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know, and so as we mature in our faith, we begin to see, uh, oh, wow, God, I I failed you here, oh, man, God, I have this habit, I have this attitude, I have this thing in my life, oh, this whole time, I didn't realize it, and then you see it, and you're like, how did I not notice, right? Sometimes as we become more like Christ, we feel less like Christ, Um, and if we had to be honest, all of us have moments where we fall way short of that, don't we? Um, speaking for myself, um, there are times I still get road rage. That's only me, right? Uh, how many of you guys? That's someone's driving slow in the left lane. Someone cuts you off. Someone's not paying attention, texting and driving. Right? Some of you are texters and drivers. We we get angry about these kind of things, um, or maybe uh, we get irritated with people who eat too loudly. All right, there we go. All right, I see, I see those hands. All right. Thanks for the feedback. If you're not talking to me, I'm gonna be like, okay, it's just me. My bad. All right, guys, I'm just confessing these things, and you guys don't even get it. Um, I'll I'll confess specifically. So, <laughs> sorry, honey. Um, last night, I'll start with that. So last night, um, and I don't even, there was nothing like wrong. I was really, I'll tell you, I was really tired last night. I went to bed early last night. I was just, I was exhausted. And so I'm, I'm reading in the living room, and my wife comes in, and I can just, I can just hear her. And she wasn't eating loudly. It was just quiet in the room. And I'm sitting there, I'm like... Oh. And I'm like, wait a second. You're, you're mad that she's eating. Uh, okay, yeah, that's normal. Um, what's wrong with you? Uh, but that happens, right? Um, some of us do that to people like just to get on their nerves. I also do that. If I know someone has that problem, I do that. To um, so that's another fault. I'm just going to confess all of these, I guess. Um, but we I, sometimes... Um, Maybe you can relate to this. Probably all of us in here can relate. I think about money more than I should. Uh, I worry about finances. Uh, I I wonder. Uh, I look at people that have nicer things than I do, and I like nice things. My neighbor, um, he pulled in. He had a um, he pulled in the other day with a brand new uh, Ram pickup truck. I mean, it's a pretty truck. It's kind of like my. I like, if I had to get one, like the color, I like like the um, the charcoal gray. It's that. I mean, it's that. Deep gray color with all the chrome. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a pretty truck. I like that truck. I would love to drive that truck. Oh, man. I'm looking at my 15-year-old Chevy Impala. Hmm, The blinkers work most of the time. The trunk stays open if I prop it. Um, oh, man. I, I think about that kind of stuff. Uh, or we like the nicer house, we drive by. And it's easy It's easy living in Monclova, right? Uh, we drive by, some of us, you know, my wife and I, we live right down the street, live in a small, smaller house. And so we drive by, we see some of these nicer houses, we're like, oh, that's a nice house. Hmm, I'd like that house. No one here does that, just me. Um, so it's okay. I'll confess that you guys can just keep it to yourselves. Um, sometimes I find more satisfaction in the praise of people than in the uh, approval of God. Sometimes it means more to me, that someone says, oh, that was good, then then that God approves of that thing. For being honest, sometimes I I value what people think more than what God thinks, more than what God knows. Sometimes um, I can be selfish. Sometimes I can be cowardly. Sometimes I can be ambitious in all the wrong ways. Sometimes uh, these things, I find them in myself. But you say, you're a pastor. You're supposed to be modeling discipleship. I know, I know. We find these things within ourselves, sometimes even like the Pharisees. um, I can use gifts as a platform to make myself feel good about myself. These are things that go on. These are things that are within us. And if I'm really honest, I'm afraid of the future as much as I have faith in God for it. I think about tomorrow. I think about weeks from now, years from now, and it scares me. My faith's not as strong as it ought to be. I look at my kids and say, God, I know they're in your hands, but man, I fear for those things. I I look at uh, ministry. I look at all kinds of things. I say, God, I'm afraid for these things, and, and I worry, and I fret. And so how does this, how is it that as I grow older and as I'm supposed to be maturing, I still find myself in conflict with these things? Sometimes even, if I were to be really honest, as I read through the scriptures and I hear Jesus calling out to his father saying, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes when I pray to God, I almost want to say, God, why haven't you forsaken me? This is who I am. I am not even close to deserving these things. I am wicked. I am faithless. I am wretched. And yet he hasn't. And yet he hasn't. So how does this play into discipleship? I mean, sometimes um, I like to read. Um, I like to read, and sometimes I think some of the greatest thoughts and uh, um, pieces of information some of the things that really bounce around in my brain are pieces that I've read from like classical fiction or from uh, fictional writings that I read different things, some of the themes they deal with. One of, the, one of the ones that stands out to me that I relate to, I relate to Ishmael from Moby Dick, all right, and not by Call Me Ishmael, okay? I relate, I relate to Ishmael, he says this, I am dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Some days that's me, right? Most days that's me. Something wrong with me, I need fixed. Did someone amen that? All right, hurtful, oh goodness. Just kidding, I'm just kidding. It was my wife? Oh my, should have known. Should have known. It was, it was the eating comment, wasn't it? But when I look at myself, another author said it this way, and I, 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 I totally relate to this. I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I feel discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about feeling not guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I'm honest, yet I play games. Inside of ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, honest with each other, we have this tension of what we ought to do and what we are doing. The man we ought to be, the woman we ought to be, and the woman, the man that we are. We feel these two at odds within ourselves. Some days, almost feeling like they're going to tear us apart. How do we overcome this? How do we move past this? One encouragement comes from knowing that the heroes of our faith, they deal with these things too. As we look throughout the Bible, we find men and women who are troubled men and women. We don't find people who are lifted up as being better than. We find men and women that are desperately dependent on God. And tonight, as we plunge into this, I want to unpack the idea of desperately dependent discipleship. Desperately dependent discipleship. Even as we open up the Scripture, and uh, you don't have to turn there, but Isaiah 6, the chapter following what we're going to read here in just a minute, Isaiah 6, Isaiah confesses, he says to God, he says, God, I'm a man of unclean lips. He he sees God in the temple, this vision God gives him. He sees God in his holiness. He sees God as he is. And he says, woe is me, I am undone. Meaning this, I feel like I'm on the verge of being unmade. I feel like I'm about to come unraveled. I'm going to come apart at the seams. I'm going to cease to exist from the tension that's inside of me. I feel the wickedness in me. I feel the uncleanness in me. And I look at you and I look at your holiness and I see how far away I am from what you have called me to be. Cuz remember Peter writes and he says, "Be holy as I am holy." God is speaking, "Be holy as I am holy as your Father in heaven is holy." You're called to be holy. But we're not there. We're not there. We fall so short of this goal. Paul would write um, and say in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he was the chief of sinners. And then he'd say in Romans 7, verses 24 and 25, he says this, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with mind, I myself serve the law of God. That's a good thing, right, with my mind. Oh, in theory, I serve the law of God. I many of you guys are with me. In theory, I believe these things. I follow after God. In theory, that's what I'm for. But then what does he say? But with the flesh, in reality, in practice, day to day, the law of sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says. I relate to that. I get Paul. And, but understand this. A disciple doesn't believe that they are good enough. A disciple knows that they are not good enough. A disciple doesn't believe that they are good enough. A disciple knows that they are not good enough. In your own strength, in your own might, in your own power, you are incapable of living a successful Christian life. You're not good enough for it. You're going to come face to face with this reality if you haven't already. You can't do it, and neither can I. And that's okay. Okay. God doesn't want you to try to do it that way. One author said this, in your Christian walk, you cannot pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You don't even have boots. You can't do it. The self-made man does not exist in Christianity. In business, they can exist. In in culture, they can exist. In Christianity, there is no self-made man. There is no self-made man. You don't have the strength for it. Shakespeare's character Cassius says this, the fault, dear Brutus, it is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Not in our stars, it's in ourselves. We are our enemy. We are the ones that we're fighting against. We can't be trusted any further than you can throw us, which is not very far for most of us, right? We can't be trusted. We lie to ourselves, we cheat ourselves, we deceive ourselves, over and over and over again. One, uh, I love this illustration. This is, we're going to jump right into the text here in a moment. But I wanna share with you um, some entries from a diary from the man by the name of Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson. Does anyone know what Samuel Johnson's famous for? No Googling, all right? Samuel Johnson, all right, perfect. Samuel Johnson is, um, you'll know his work as soon as I tell you about it. Um, hopefully, a lot of you use it. Um, but Samuel Johnson wrote in his um, diary in 1738. 1738, a long time ago, okay, not a millennial. You're gonna see why I said that. he says this, Oh Lord, enable me to redeem the time which I have spent in sloth. It's a good prayer request, right? Help me to redeem the time I've spent in sloth. 17.57, 19 years later, for those of you who uh, don't want to do the math, he says this, Oh mighty God, enable me to shake off sloth and redeem the time misspent in idleness and sin by diligent application of the days yet remaining. 19 years later, still the same prayer request. 1759, enable me to shake off idleness and sloth. We see a theme. 19, um, 19, yeah, 200 years later, all right. 1761, he says this, I've resolved until I have resolved that I'm afraid to resolve again. You guys follow that? I am resolved, I have resolved until I have resolved that I'm afraid to resolve again. I've said I'm going to do it until I've said I can't say I'm going to do it anymore. That's where he's at. We, we can understand. We can relate to this tension. 1764, my indolence since my last reception of the sacrament was sunk into grossest sluggishness. My purpose is from this time to avoid idleness and to rise early. This is nearly 30 years later. In that same year, later, uh, I resolved to rise early, not later than 6 o'clock if I can. 1765, the next year, I purpose to rise at 8. Nailed it. Because though I shall not rise early, watch this. This is why I said the millennial thing, okay? So don't throw us under the bus, all right? I purpose to rise at eight because though I shall not rise early, it will be much earlier than I now rise. For I often lie until two. All right? What are you doing, Sam? 1769. I am not yet in a state to form any resolutions. <laughs> I purpose and hope to rise early in the morning by 8 and by degrees at 6. 1775. When I look back upon resolution of improvement and amendments, which I have year after year been made and broken, why do I yet try to resolve again? I try because reformation is necessary and despair is criminal. In the same passage, he resolves again to rise at 8. And the last entry that we have on this topic is from 1781. This is three years before his death, 43 years since the first resolution. He says, I will not despair. Help me, oh my God. And he resolves to rise at eight or sooner, once again, to avoid idleness. This is coming from a man named Samuel Johnson. Samuel Johnson authored the first dictionary of the English language. This is not a man who had no ability, obviously. I mean, that's an incredible work, the first dictionary of the English language. The predecessor to Webster and these other men that we know now by name, Samuel Johnson. And yet he could never, he could never on his own overcome this sloth and idleness. For 40 years, he's battling and he's battling, sometimes humorously, battling this idleness. So Even though we try and fail and try and fail, we continue to make resolutions. In fact, self-help industry, $10 billion per year. billion spent on self-improvement. We understand this tension because inside of us, inside of each of us, is what we can call a healthy, healthy dissatisfaction or a holy dissatisfaction. A healthy and a holy dissatisfaction. We understand where we are. We understand that we crave more. We desire more. We thirst for more. And so that brings us to the question, is being a disciple of Jesus, is that even within our grasp? Is that even within our ability? Is that something that we can actually even fulfill, or are we out of luck? Well, this is where we come to the scripture for tonight. Isaiah 5. And in this passage, we find an illustration of the vine. Throughout the Old Testament, in fact, we see five authors reference the vine. And specifically in the Old Testament, they speak of the vine of Israel, as we're going to see in just a moment. And actually, this vine is very entrenched in their ideology. And so first century Jews would be familiar with the coins of the Maccabees. Uh, The Maccabees uh, were in power, but in the kind of the silent years of Scripture, right before Christ, following the last of the Old Testament prophets. And on their coinage, even, uh, they would have um, vines and grapes as symbols that were engraved on these coins. Um, If you were to go into the temple of Jesus' day and you were to walk into um, facing the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the outer place, the holy place, you would look above the doors and around the frames and you would see golden vines with grapes, clusters coming off of them. And wealthy Jews would bring in gold, some of them enough for a grape, some of them enough for a cluster of grapes that would get added to this vine. Israel identified with this vine. But you know what's ironic and what's kind of funny? Um, Sometimes the biblical Israelites, and I think this is probably true of all of us, but it's easier for us to look back at them and laugh, Um, sometimes they lack some self-awareness. Because every time in the Old Testament we see this vine mentioned, we actually see this vine mentioned in kind of a worn out, uh, dilapidated, dissatisfying way. So follow me to Isaiah 5. Isaiah's writing, and he's specifically telling of God the husbandman, God the vine keeper. Uh, now will I sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard my well-beloved, speaking of God, hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. What's that saying? It's fertile ground. This is soil that is ready to be developed. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein. Okay, so what's happening here? God, the husbandman, has taken this land and he has fenced it in he gathered out the stones, so anything that would hinder the growth of this vine. He found the choicest vine, the best vine that he could hope to find. He built a tower in the middle of this area to protect it from invasion, to protect it from destruction. And he made a wine press there, and he even prepared for the fruit to come. He made a wine press that he might be able to make use of this harvest that he was expecting. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes. The time to harvest had come. He had put in the work. And he looked and he watched. He began to go through the fields and say, okay, the fruit is ready. The fruit is here. And as he went to look for the grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. These aren't the grapes I planted, God says. This isn't the fruit that I sowed. Something else has taken its place. This isn't what I prepared for. And watch what... Isaiah writes, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me, God, and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? This is God asking the question. Kind of rhetorical, right? Answer, nothing. Nothing. Wherefore have I looked that it should bring forth grapes? It brought forth wild grapes. Now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. Break down the wall thereof, it shall be trodden down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged. There shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel." The man of Judah, his pleasant plant, he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. And so as God, the husbandman, as God, the gardener, comes in, he looks for this fruit and he doesn't find it. He says, all right then, I'll uproot it. I'll start over. I'll tear it down. And the vine in the Old Testament is always pictured as one that was cared for but ran wild. One that never fulfilled the expectations that the gardener placed on the vine. So now we fast forward to John 15. This is just days before the death of Christ. In fact, uh, this time frame is after the Last Supper, but prior to his betrayal. And many scholars believe that this is actually during the time that Jesus is traveling from the place that they ate together, that he told them, This is my body, this is my blood. And the time that he told them, take, eat, this is my body, the time that all these things are taking place, he's traveling from this upper room all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he would pray, where he would challenge his disciples to pray, but they would fall asleep, where Judas and the men that he has come with come to take Jesus, where Judas betrays him. He's en route between these two places. And in that area, there are a number of vineyards, the number of vines where people would grow these fruit of the vine, where they would grow grapes. And so Jesus, as he is going by, most likely, uh, we believe, looked over at these vines as he was speaking to his disciples. And with Isaiah 5 in mind, the picture becomes clear. Jesus says this: "I am the true vine. I am the true vine." Israel was pictured as a vine, but who's the true vine? Jesus is. See, oftentimes in Scripture, the Old Testament gives a shadow where the New Testament gives a substance. The Old Testament gives us a picture or a symbol where the New Testament gives us reality, gives us definition. And so here we see Jesus as he comes in, he says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And as he's speaking this, he's saying, your birth does not make you a part of this vine. Followers of mine. Your, 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 your birth here, your lineage here, doesn't make you a part of the work that I'm doing, but he says, I'm the true vine. And what does he say? He says, my father is the husbandman. The work that's done is done by the father. And understand, this is grueling work. This is difficult work that he's referring to. We saw it played out some in Isaiah 5, where this, is, this means clearing and preparing the ground. This means constructing what we would today call a trellis. This is a system by which the vines can grow up off of the ground so they can remain healthy. These are practices done by people that keep vineyards. And so constructing the necessary environment for these to grow involves pruning. For the first two, maybe three years, vines don't grow. Branches on a vine do not grow fruit. They have to prune them back and prune them back and prune them back. Finally, when they're allowed to bear fruit, they're still pruned at least once a year as they keep the the fruit from growing too quickly so that it can grow healthy later. And so what happens as we continue in this lesson? Jesus says, Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. Every time there's fruit, there's no fruit on a branch, he says, he, he takes that branch away. He doesn't want that, that nutrition. This is how a good uh, husbandman, a good gardener, would tend to a uh, vine. You would remove the branch that didn't bear fruit um, so that it wouldn't take the nutrients, take the energy, take the, uh, the fruit flowing through the healthy branches, through the vine. And every branch that, branch that bears fruit, he purges it. It undergoes a purging process. Why? He's, he answers this. That it may bring forth more fruit. So he lays the groundwork for this lesson, and he kind of repeats himself as we come here in verse 3, so we're going to take it slower this time through. Now you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. He's saying you're clean, you've been cleansed, you're pure, purified. This is referring to the salvation that these men have had. He he talks to them in John 13, and he uh, he says in John 13, you're clean. You're clean. As he's washing their feet, he, he uh, uh, pronounces them as being clean. This is positionally, this is saying, your sins have been washed away. He's speaking, remember this, he's speaking here to the 11 faithful disciples. Judas is not present. He's speaking to the 11 that followed after him, that sought after him. So they've been saved, so what next? You're clean, and then what next? What next, disciples? What next, those following after? Verse 4. Abide in me. Abide in me. And that's the key, really, this word here, abide, the key to our understanding of this passage. Abide in me. That word abide is not a word that we use a whole lot. Um, As I was studying for this, it's funny, you know, when you're reading a word or when you see a word um, that you're thinking about more often, all of a sudden you hear it in a number of different places, right? Okay. So I was listening. I've heard this word used so many times now in the last, like, 24 hours. It's unbelievable. Like, there's no way this word gets used this often. We hear it occasionally, right? But it's not like, okay, um, we we don't say, like, my abode. Or sometimes, you know, there's a figure of speech that someone can't abide this kind of person. What does abide mean here in this context? What is he saying when he says abide in me? It's such an important word. There has to be an understanding of this. To abide means to dwell or to stay. Uh, But it also means, look at verse number 9. This is the same um, Greek word used here. Verse number 9, Jesus says this. The Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue ye in my love. That word continue, it's the same word here that Jesus used for abide. Abide. It means to continue as well. There's one meaning between these. There's an understanding between these. Verse 11, there's one more time that this word is used where it's not used as abide. It says this, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you. That's the same word, abide, to dwell, continue. And so he says, dwell in me, abide in me, continue in me, remain in me. What is he saying here? What is the picture Watch this. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. Abide in me like the branch abides in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. So there are, three, there are three aspects of abiding that I want to take away from this verse. Three aspects of abiding, and we're going to take we're going to do this very quickly. They're this first of all, connection. Connection. When we abide, when the branch abides, the branch is connected to the vine. This is positionally, this is when we are saved, we are connected to Christ. We are born again. Uh, There's a new life that happens. We are placed in him. And that's why I look at that very beginning of verse 4. Abide in me. We are in Christ. Other places, other biblical authors would use that phrase, in Christ. If you're in Christ... And so this is a connection that we have with him through our salvation. But you know what's also interesting here? He says, abide in me and I in you. You see, this is mutual here. And this is what's really interesting. When you read this passage in its kind of context here, you see John 14 is actually where Jesus introduces us in a very strong way, in a very real way to the comforter that will come. This is the comforter that we today know as the Holy Spirit. And he says that if I go away, this comforter is going to come to you. In fact, he says, it's good for me that I go away so that I can send the comforter to you. And so he says, as I leave you disciples, abide in me, stay in me, stay connected to the things that I've taught you. Later, he's going to use the phrase, abide in my words, following the teachings that Jesus has laid out. And then he says this, I in you that comforter that comes at the moment of our salvation, the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives and dwells inside of you. That same word, dwell, abide within you. And so we are connected to God through this process of abiding. And this comes at the moment of our salvation, but that's not the end of this. So how do we continue? How do we abide? If they were saved, why does he even have to tell them to do these things? Watch this. It not only connotes connection, it also shows us dependence dependence. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. You know what's really fascinating about the use of the vine in this passage? The vine is actually, uh, the wood of the vine is useless. This isn't um, something that you can take and you can put enough of it together and all of a sudden it has strength. It's very frail. Um, It's very, uh, it lacks strength. A vine, a branch of a vine, is not something that you would be desirous of. I mean, maybe you can try to fashion it into some kind of decor, but for any real function, a vine is not useful. You're not going to build your house out of vines, okay? It's not going to be a very pretty house. It's not going to last very long. This is not something that was commonly accepted. In fact, even in the Old Testament sacrifices, when they had to bring wood for a sacrifice, the wood of a vine was not able to be used for these sacrifices because it was viewed as a, something that was is useless. And also the vine, once it's separated from the branch, there's no hope of that. Or once the branch is separated from the vine, the branch has no hope of any life thereafter. You can't take a branch from a vine and stick it in the dirt and try to get it to grow. It won't grow. It won't do anything. You're not going to prolong it. You're just going it's going to die. It's going to wither and because why? It's dependent. It's dependent on the vine. The branch doesn't grow fruit by itself. The branch doesn't do anything by itself. The branch only ever exists in the vine. And he says if you don't abide in me, you're like a branch that doesn't abide in the vine. If you're not connected to me, if you're not dwelling, if you're not continuing in me and my words, you're like a branch without the vine. You, there, there's nothing that you can do. In fact, he would double down on this. Look at verse number uh, five. I am the vine, he explains. You are the branches. He that abides in me, I in him. The same brings forth much fruits. For without me, you can do nothing. There's dependence There's dependence on the part of the branch. The branch is incapable of bearing any kind of fruit without the nutrition, without the substance, without the things that are flowing from the vine. And then finally, the third aspect is this, continuance. Continuance. You see, abiding is not something that has been achieved. You don't, this doesn't, you you wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense for you to go, you know what, I abode. I have done my job as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I abode in Christ. This isn't something that you complete. Uh, When we talk about life coach, this is just, this is a tool. Uh, You don't walk out the other side of it after 10, 11 weeks and say, I was abiding in Christ through it, and now I have abode. Now, that's what I've done. I have checked this off my list. I am a disciple. There's nothing more for me to do. Sometimes, if we think about discipleship as being only intellectual understanding, we can think, wow, I know the Scripture, therefore, I am a mature believer. That's a big mistake. Having an understanding of the Scripture does not grant us maturity. In fact, I know people who are lost and know the Scripture very, very well. There's no faith in it. It's a a textbook. It's ancient literature. It's meaningless to them because they don't abide in these words. They don't abide in Christ. Christ doesn't abide in them. And so discipleship requires, it requires connection with God. It requires dependency. And it requires continuation. Continuation. We're always growing. We're constantly growing. And Jesus elaborates as we read verse 5. Let's read this again. I'm the vine. You are the branches. He, he speaks speaks on this. He says, if there was any doubt in your mind, this is what it means. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, see there it is again, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So there's contrast given here. If I abide, if I'm connected, if I'm dependent, if I'm continuing, I will bring forth fruit. And how much fruit does he promise here? What does he say? Much fruit. A little fruit? Fruit that's barely noticeable? No, he says, much fruit. If you go through this process, there will be much fruit. If you abide, if, if you're dependent, and if you continue, much fruit. This is the guarantee of Christ. But contrast out here, if I don't abide without him, I can do what? Now, does that mean that I can't get out of bed and I can't tie my shoes? You know what? In a very real sense, I believe that's true. Because in him, all things live and breathe and have our being. Uh, But here, that's not what he's referring to. He's saying, he's saying, there's no fruit bearing without me. There's no fruit bearing without me. You can come to church. You can punch in and punch out. You can go through the motions. You can go through the steps. But without being connected to me, he says, there's not going to be fruit. Without dependence, without continuation in these things, there's no fruit. There's nothing to show for it. It's empty. It's vain. It's religion without relationship. And that's what Jesus is warning against here. He says, you must abide in me. You must abide in me. So what happens to the branch that does not abide? I want you to understand this. Um, as we read this, I do not believe that this is in line with Scripture if it, this were to mean, and I don't believe it means this, I'll explain what I think it means, if this were to mean that our salvation were losable. As we read this, keep this in mind. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, if a man cease to abide in me, does he? He says, if a man if it doesn't abide in me, he doesn't say, if you were once abiding and now you have stopped abiding. That's not the warning here. Now watch what John would elaborate this in 1 John 2.19. If you want to read this and study this out, First John 2.19 is a great verse on this topic. John, the same John that's recording, John 15, says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have, watched this word, continued with us. If they were part of us, if they were part of the body of believers, if they were a disciple, they would have continued. But they went out. That they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So he's speaking of those who now deny faith. At one time they said, oh yeah, Jesus. And then now they're saying, no, 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 not Jesus. Jesus plus works. Jesus plus these other things. Not not, not, not just Jesus. That doesn't make any sense. They've rejected the truth. And it, John says that If they were with us, they would have continued. They would have abode with us. And so we actually see this as being a warning of the fate of those not of Christ. For sake of time, we're going to keep moving. So what's the fruit then that he's promising? Look at verse number 7. There are two types of fruit that Jesus speaks of here. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. So what is he saying? Is he saying, wow, if you abide in me, then you can ask for that brand new truck, and it's yours. Is that what's going on here? Some of us would like that. We'd be like, "Oh, yeah, that'd be nice, right? In fact, that wouldn't necessarily be nice because we have something so much better. So much better. Because you know what he's saying here? He's not promising what our flesh wants, what our heart wants, Maybe I can illustrate it best this way. Um, there are certain things that my kids like and my kids want. Um, my daughters love, um, they love the, the series, um, it's books, there's a TV show made off of it. Um, Fancy Nancy, they love Fancy Nancy. All right? Our whole family loves Fancy Nancy, right? So when the kids go to bed, mom and dad stay up and we watch Fancy Nancy. Does anyone believe that? Hopefully not. Some of you guys are like, maybe. Nope. That's not what happens, right? We don't sit there watching Fancy Nancy. We get sick of Fancy Nancy throughout the day. All right? There's enough Fancy Nancy to go around in our house. But in fact, if I watch it, why am I watching it? Because my kids are watching it. Because I want to spend time with them. I want to relate to them. I want to do something that they want to do. If I'm reading the Fancy Nancy book, it's because my kids are in the room. You're not going to knock on the door of my house, and I'm not going to answer the door and be like, oh, my kids are in bed. I was just reading Fancy Nancy. Oh, Nancy, you get into the greatest uh, trouble. (laughs) That's not what happens. In fact, I look forward to the day, I don't want to wish away the time I have now, but I look forward to the day that um, my kids begin to love the things that I love. I look forward to them uh, as they're around me, as they see my passion um, for certain things, that they begin to grow in that passion. Um, I, I hope that a couple of my kids like to play sports because I like to play sports. If you don't like to play sports, that's fine, okay? And your kids don't want to play sports, that's fine. They're not my kids, you know, right? I don't have to relate to them in that way. I want to play sports with my kids. I, I want to teach them how to shoot a basketball. I to teach them how to kick a soccer ball. That's, I want to do that with my kids. Um, I want to walk with them through reading. I want to read books with them and talk about our favorite stories. I want to study the scripture with them. I want to do creative things with them. Like, I can't wait for them to be able to attain those things. As we walk with God, we grow more like God. The desires of our heart begin to change from the new truck and the pretty house to the things that God desires for us. And all of a sudden, what we'll find is we abide in Christ, and as he abides in us, all of a sudden, and understand, look what it says here. It says that if his words abide in you, how did the words get into you, right? How do his words dwell in you? If you're not studying the scripture, if you're not memorizing scripture, if you're not reading your Bible faithfully, his words aren't going to abide in you. That's how they get in us in the first place. And so here, as we are abiding in him, and he is abiding through the Holy Spirit, through the power of the word, abiding in us, that changes us. That changes us. We're different than we once were. And I love how it said, one pastor said it this way. He said, make your wants God's wants, and then ask for whatever you want. Make your wants God's wants, then ask for whatever you want. That's the prayer that God answers. That's the prayer that God receives. When we seek after him, we say, God, I think you want this thing and I want it too. God, give me this thing. Give me this opportunity to witness. Give me the ability to bring glory to your name in my workplace. God, help me to reach my neighbors. Give me wisdom to be able to be neighborly to them. God, give me a burden for my city. God, give me a burden for those around me. Help me to raise kids that love you and desire to serve you. Those are the prayer requests God answers. God God desires to answer those requests. Make your wants God's wants, and then ask whatever you want, and he'll answer these things. And so fruit number one is answered prayer. Fruit number two, verse number eight, herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. In the fruit-bearing process, who gets glory? Does the branch get any kind of glory? Do you open up the bag of grapes that you buy at the store and rinse them off, pop them in your mouth, and start chewing those and say, man, that must have been a great branch that grew these grapes. Anyone ever done that? No. If you think about it, you probably think about um, the, the vineyard that it was in, the manufacturers, the people who were part of the process of getting the grapes from them to you, if you even think about it, right? If you were to go to a vineyard and cut off a bunch of grapes, you know who you would praise? The gardeners, the ones who are keeping the vines, you say, wow, it's, this is beautiful. You've done such a great job. Wow, these are such healthy fruit. How do you do this? Same thing is true in the lives of a disciple. In the lives of a disciple, the disciple doesn't get any glory for this. And that's okay, because you know who does? The Father. The Father's glorified. That's why we're here, to bring glory to God, to bring glory to his name. And in that, we can rejoice that God is glorified because he's the one that's worthy of this glory. You're not. We talked about this. I'm not. God is glorified. God is glorified. That we bear much fruit. The fruit-bearing process involves pruning. It involves cutting away parts that aren't productive, that aren't healthy, that don't lead us to bearing fruit. Sometimes the the gardener, often in fact, the husbandman, has to go through the pruning process with the branches and cut away the pieces of the branch that don't bring glory. That's not a comfortable process. That's not a fun process, but it's a process nonetheless. And I believe that God does so through the power of his word. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Joints and mirrors a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, through the power of the Word of God, joined with oftentimes the suffering and the circumstances that we walk through in our day-to-day lives, God prunes us. He removes parts of us, maybe even parts that we really enjoyed, maybe even parts that we were quite fond of. But he says, this doesn't bring honor to me. This doesn't bring glory to me. That part's got to go. And then what does he say at the end here? What does he say at the end? Watch this. So shall ye be my disciples. So shall ye be my disciples. How does a disciple bear fruit? What does it mean when we're abiding in Christ? See, a branch abides in the vine. It's desperately, desperately dependent on the vine. Desperately dependent on the vine. It can't bear fruit of itself. It can do nothing on its own. And a disciple bears fruit by becoming desperately dependent on Christ. Let's pray, and we're going to finish up tonight. Father, we thank you.